Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real, because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we revisit a conversation we had earlier this year with Alex Pollock and Howard Adler, authors of a new book called Surprised Again, The COVID Crisis and the New Market Bubble. We'll get into why economic crises always seem to take us by surprise and why the remedies often seem to have consequences such as spiraling inflation and market bubbles. When we recorded this program earlier this year, inflation was near a 40-year high. It's come down somewhat since then, but it's still a challenge for our economy. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tory Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson join the conversation. Well, Alex Pollack is a senior fellow at the Mises Institute. He was principal deputy director of the Office of Financial Research of the U.S. Treasury from November 2019 to February 2021, and has been a fellow at the R Street Institute and the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, He's also uh, written a book prior to this called Why We're Always Surprised. Howard Adler is an attorney and former government official. From May 2019 through January 2021, he served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for the Financial Stability Oversight Council, where he was responsible for monitoring the financial stability of the United States during the COVID crisis. He was, in fact, awarded the Treasury's Distinguished Service Award for his efforts by the Secretary of the Treasury. Alex and uh, Howard, welcome to Facing the Future. Thank you for coming. This is a really timely book. It begins by describing the two of you having a conversation in December of 2019, thinking about what could possibly rock the economy. <laughs> and uh, obviously, this was the last thing on your mind. Uh, and you weren't the only ones that were surprised. In fact, everybody was surprised. <laughs> Certainly, we were surprised. And yet, in a couple of months, we found ourselves in an enormously uh, deep crisis. And I thought one of the other things uh, that was interesting about that is that while nobody thought about this as a looming economic crisis, there was a lot of talk, chatter in the uh, scientific sphere about a global pandemic and how this was a real possibility. I think there was even an office in the Obama White House to sort of brainstorm some of these things. And yet, you know, the possibility of actually, you know, what, what sort of economic impact that, that had wasn't baked into anybody's uh, projections. And, you know, I'd, I kind of liked as we get started, get your thoughts about this whole idea of uncertainty and uh, how that causes reactions and, and how that leads to, you know, maybe chain reactions and, uh, uh, you know, ramifications down the line. Alex, uh, let's, let's start with you. We had the surprise of uh, early 2020, as the book talks about, and that Howard and I missed it along with everybody else. 
we like uh, part of the book is a a macro discussion, or you might say a meditation on uncertainty, the which we view as uh, unavoidable, inescapable when it comes to the financial and economic future. And one of the results of that is when there when there is a crisis and we are surprised in a bad way, uh, there will always be a government reaction. But because it won't have been expected, the reaction will be made up as they go, fly, flying by the seat of their pants, uh, as a former Secretary of the Treasury, Paulson, so accurately described the activities of, of the crisis before this one. And then you, you get this inventing it as we go set of things, which we surely saw this time. And then when you think about the, the ultimate cost of that, that's also what you don't expect because you haven't figured all out how it's it's going to work. So the uncertainty is uh, absolutely essential uh, to the story. You mentioned the, the the fact that the notion of of uh, mutating viruses, which could create a pandemic, was a well known possibility. You might even say a probability, even a certainty in time, with uncertain timing, but at some point or other. But what nobody got was the link between the emergence of, of a new, highly contagious, threatening virus and a financial panic. And in between that link is politics, because panic also, re also reflected the political response to the virus. And no, nobody got that. And we have this little place in the book, which which I'm fond of, where we turn uh, to the reader and say, now, uh, reader, uh, did you, in your forecasting, predict the link between the emergence of a virus and a financial panic and crash? We say, no, you didn't. Did you even did you even have it as one of your very remote but possible contingencies of some kind of tail risk? No, you didn't. We say, and and no, they didn't. Is that an inevitable thing, or is there some sort of a failure of planning there? I mean, if you're thinking about a global pandemic, should you be thinking about uh, the potential economic consequences? I mean, I'm sure it came up, but I, I don't think anybody was thinking about exactly how it unfolded. It was not no, and especially the financial market consequences. Yeah, which, which, I mean, should was that a failure of planning, or just that's no, the way things are? I, I think it's the way things are in uh, in in fundamental and ineluctable uh, uncertainty. One of the, the things about this crisis is that um, I guess all financial crises are unique to some extent, but most of the recent financial crises we've seen have been the uh, some asset inflation, which has led to the bursting of a bubble. And so the crisis predominated in one or two sectors of the financial uh, system. What nobody got was that a, uh, a pandemic would shut down the entire economy. People could not go to work. People could not earn a living. Businesses shut down, restaurants, uh, small businesses. It was a crisis across all time. If you look at um, the, the two um, uh, health crises, and, 
you know, folks were gaming in the in the, in, in the health agencies, uh, health crises and what would happen and how you'd get vaccines and how you do all of that sort of thing. But they never put the two together. They, and during the Black Death, in a, in a sense, there was no real economy to have shut down completely, although given the the, the fact that, as we point out in the book, the Black Death was much worse than this crisis in terms of deaths and health impact. And you go to the to the the the, the 1918 flu again. It was a different thing. People kept working. Um, that you know they got sick and and many died. But the, again, there was no general shutdown of the economy, and that's what you saw here, which really made it a, a very unique. Uh, crisis, and that's what people didn't put together. That you would have a health crisis that would lead to a total shutdown. Tori, both of you said in your book and in speeches that you've given that real uncertainties are always there, but our government is immutably, frustratingly myopic, despite mountains of evidence. Uh, that we know that it's essential to look forward and plan ahead and prepare for both known crises. Okay, we know we've got problems in Medicare, Social Security. We know we have a problem at the border. We we fail to invest in infrastructure, global warming. Oh my goodness! And then unknown crises, things like like COVID, natural disasters. What's going on in California right now? This happens time and time and time and again, and yet we still end up with with lawmakers that refuse to look ahead, plan ahead, solve ahead. Where do we go from here? What what is there any evidence among lawmakers that you can see that they've learned from this experience and are changing the way they think about the future and the potential for future crises? Um, Well, the answer is, of course, unfortunately, no, but it's even worse than than what you what you say, Tori, because um, after the last great, you know, the Great Recession of 2007 and 2008, one what became um, uh, a mainstay among not just the United States government was, uh, but uh, uh, inter- internationally as well, was the creation of the financial stability industry. Um, I ran the staff of FSOC for for two years, and FSOC was set up basically to foresee these things and then to problems and then to remediate them. It was primarily a regulatory focus. Um, uh, We point out in the book that there were 30 financial stability reports done by uh, the US government and central banks and FSOC, very good staff of smart economists and financial analysts. Alex ran the staff of the Office of uh, Financial Regulation at Treasury bunch of PhD economists. They all wrote these, these reports. Um, the ECB had reports. The IMF had reports. The Fed does a quarterly financial stability report. No one saw any of this. And it's an interesting, um, interesting. you know, Alex, who's a, uh, is at least a, uh, as much a philosopher as he is a financial writer, in one of his uh, prior books, Boom and Bust, um, thought that the approach of uh, to financial stability of trying to regulate it is the wrong con- wrong thing to do. What, what he argued for is that you have in effect a um, uh, you know a, a group of Socrat- smart Socratic gadflies who run around uh, government and the hill and say, "Hey, watch out! What haven't you thought about? You know we're going to have another crisis. Think about it. Plan ahead for it." 
uh, an advisory group rather than the regulatory group. And maybe that would that would do better because, you know, uh, these financial stability groups uh, groups get lost in uh, in things like uh, how how's the what's the best way to regulate cryptocurrency and, and things of that. And what they don't do is say, wake up, sleepyhead. You're, you've got another crisis coming. We don't know where it's coming from, but you better think about it. When you you ask whether people learn, the answer is yes, they learn. They learn similar lessons every time and then forget them. I was at a conference in probably about 2008, I remember, um, and a senior economist there present said in a, in a very a pompous voice, what we have learned from this crisis is the importance of liquidity risk. I said, yes, that's what we learn from every crisis. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the, you know, the, it, it's sort of when you, when you read about uh, military history, the generals are often accused of having fought fighting the last war. And that's uh, what, what we do on the financial side as well. Um, in 2007 and 2008, you had a, uh, a crisis uh, in, the, uh, in the banking system. And uh, after Dodd-Frank, all sorts of uh, regulations were put into an effect and, and procedures that in effect drove risk out of the banking system. And so the banks didn't fail this time, at least not yet. We don't know what's going to happen, uh, of course, of uncertainty down, down the road uh, at, you know, with result of this uh, inflationary cycle and whether a recession's coming. But they did pretty well. So, uh, uh, you know, maybe that lesson was learned. But uh, and, and next time they'll be looking for a pandemic. But of course, the problem will be someplace else that uh, almost inevitably that no one had ever uh, thought about before. Well, I thought one of the uh, lessons that, that was applied this time was that a lot of people thought that the reaction to the Great Recession wasn't strong enough so that we had to come in you know, with much, much more. And they did come in with with much, much more. And instead of the anemic recovery that we had from the Great Recession, we now have a uh, uh, the highest inflation in 40 years as a result. And I just wanted to get before I bring Steve into the conversation, uh, get your your take on that, because you made this point, which I think is really, really important, that the high inflation that we're uh, experiencing now and, and some of the other problems seems to be a, a probable and natural reaction to the huge amount of stimulus that went into fighting the, uh, the, the drop-off in the economic activity from the pandemic. And so it, it, it doesn't seem or shouldn't seem all that surprising, and yet it's being treated almost like as a follow-on crisis. Um, should we just think of it as, okay, this is the natural and probable reaction or, or have we created a problem of its own? We think you can think about the current inflation and note there were two inflations. There is the consumer price inflation, which everybody calls inflation, but there was also asset price inflation, which creates its own problems as the bubbles inflate and then burst, which we also had out of this. Uh, and that is, uh, as we see it, a cost of, of the massive uh, interventions, which we discuss at some length in the book, how big they were. Um, they, they were certainly big, uh, but they also 
kept going when they should have been ended. And um, as you know, we, we call this the Cincinnatian doctrine that you can come in to save the state, but when once you've saved it, you have to go back to your farm, <laughs> like Cincinnatus, the ancient Roman did, and you can't, it's very hard to get central bank and governments to stop doing what they're doing. So, so that makes the ultimate cost in the aftermath, where we are now, uh, a bigger. And needless to say, uh, a, a, I, I say the most fundamental of all economic principles is that nothing is free. And the interventions aren't free. They have costs. And they can be very large costs. And uh, if, if you want A, you're going to pay the cost of A uh, every time. And of course, what the cost would be is, is uncertain. But directionally, you can see what it will be. I just want to mention on uncertainty one other thing. Uncertainty is always there. But there are really two kinds of uncertainty. There, there's the kind that's there, but we're not sensing it. And then there's the kind that we really feel when we run around and say, we're uncertain, we're uncertain. Like in March and April 2020, everybody was saying, I can't stand the uncertainty. But before they felt that, he was already uncertain before that. And it's that, that uncertainty that's really there, but you're not paying attention to it, uh, that it's liable to really catch you. Uh, I, I would say that, um, uh, first of all, I would agree with you. I would say that the interventions in 2020, massive as they were, were necessary. We had to prevent the economy from, uh, from closing, from shutting down. We had to get money into people's pockets so that they could eat. We had to preserve uh, small businesses to the extent we, can't, we, we could. Uh, restaurants, uh, doctors, lots of doctors would have had to close up their shop, but they were able to take advantage of PPP loans. But the, the, the prices by the end of 2020 had largely abated. And uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, who was a great Treasury Secretary, uh, tried to basically get these um, programs to wind down and stop at the end of 2020. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the new administration, um, uh, uh, in effect, preserved uh, the crisis and used it for its own purposes. The American Rescue Plan in January of 2021 put in another $1.9 trillion, so supposedly related to COVID, but in fact, very little of it was related to COVID. Uh, and it was really um, uh, an exercise in traditional pork. Uh, uh, you see other spending that was that is being done that would also be inflationary, including uh, President Biden's proposal to uh, to free up uh, to, to basically uh, make uh, ten thousand or twenty thousand, depending on your status of student loans, um, uh, free, and uh, also by um, pausing uh, accruals of uh, student loan interest. And for giving payments, uh, there's a significant cost in that. The cost of all of that so far may be as much as, uh, as, as, assuming the courts don't stop his program, as much as another $600 billion. I mean, this is a lot of money. We would have had some inflation, as Alex points out. We would have had to pay for the cost of what we did in 2020, but we're having to pay a far greater cost 
because people didn't close up shop and go home at the end of 2020. I'm going to have to close up this segment and uh, we'll take a quick break. But you have you've really teed up uh, some uh, conversations for the next segment that uh, have certainly been of interest and concern to us uh, over the past uh, year or so. Uh, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with the authors of a new book called Surprised Again, uh, dealing with the COVID crisis and the new market bubble. The authors are Alex Pollock and uh, Howard Adler. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with Alex Pollock and Howard Adler. They are the co-authors of a really interesting new book called Surprised Again, The COVID Crisis and the New Market Bubble. When we ended the last segment, Howard was talking about multi-employer pensions and student loans and the phenomenon that goes along with crises, which is that maybe you treat the crisis, but maybe you treat some other things that aren't directly related to the crisis. As the saying goes, never let a good crisis go to waste. After we recorded the program earlier this year, the Supreme Court struck down President Biden's student loan debt forgiveness program, which would have cost taxpayers hundreds of billions of dollars. We've uh, actually, Steve has been really uh, a hound dog on this issue of the student loan issue. So, Steve, I wanted to turn things over to you for a question uh, first to Howard and then and then Alex uh, for a follow up. Obviously, most of the focus up to this point has been on the the, the debt forgiveness. Uh, the president proposed to write off 10,000 or 20,000 in uh, student loan debt for you know sort of the existing student borrowers. Um, but, I, you know, that that estimate is you know, somewhere in the neighborhood, CBI, I think, said it was $400 billion, um, which, of course, is, you know, their present value estimate of the repayments that we won't collect in the future. But there's actually what I think is, is an even potentially bigger issue, and that is the regulations that were released last week on the income contingent or income dependent repayment uh, program. And essentially what the uh, Department of Education has proposed would be to allow students to repay their loans at a rate of 5% of their income to the extent that their income exceeds what is 225% of the poverty level. And you know, if you compare that to the existing program, it is dramatically more generous to the students. In other words, you know, most lower middle income students could potentially never repay their loans. And so they essentially are turning loans into basically grants. And in the, uh, the Department of Education's um, Red Federal Register notice, they estimate that this is going to cost $138 billion, again, in a present value over the next 10 years. But they go out of their way to point out, they assume there will be no increase in the volume um, or the, the quantity of loans being made. So, you know, here they are, making these loans vastly more generous to the students in terms of, you know, basically they're going to repay 50 cents on the dollar. And then they say, well, the cost is low because we're assuming that nobody will take advantage of this wonderful new low cost uh, write off your loan program. I mean, it's just, it's just bizarre, but you know, the estimate of that 
I think is clearly underestimated. I mean, the 138 billion is 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 nowhere near what likely will be the cost. I mean, you know, do you think there's a danger here? I mean, you know, the federal government essentially took over the federal student loan program back in 2010 when they passed Obamacare, and that was sold on the basis of this as a cost savings that the government was going to be able to run this program and save money because those old greedy private banks weren't doing a good job. And, you know, the federal government's going to do so much better. And it turns out what the federal government's going to do is give out the loans and never collect any payments. I mean, it, it's just, it's rather bizarre. Right. And you raised really an excellent point. Uh, and uh, 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 Bob had mentioned uh, student loans and uh, um, uh, the um, uh uh, uh, p- pension plan, multi-pension, uh, uh, multi-pension multi, uh, p- plan uh, bailout, which was part of the American Rescue Plan. I'd like to sort of um, tie those two together. The student loan program is a deeply flawed program, and the, from the beginning, from the outset, and the problem is that no one has any skin in the game. As long as loan money is, is cheap and easily available and there's essentially no credit check, colleges can simply raise their costs and uh, rely upon the government to uh, guarantee uh, loans that get increasingly larger as tuition goes up. And there's no incentive on colleges to cut costs, stop hiring administrators, stop raising tuition at all. And so the problem, the student loan problem can be divided into the past problem, which is probably a uh, a $1.1.5 trillion problem uh, existing student loans if, if none of them uh, paid off. And the future problem, we're still making these bad loans and the whole will continue to get larger and larger and larger. And the deficit will get larger and larger as a result of, of these things. Uh, and the same with the, uh, the, 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 the problem uh, is that uh, this bailout, like the bailout of, um, of uh, pension plans, uh, uh, imposes no um, reform. Uh, these are both, uh, uh, both of them were deeply flawed programs. Both of them, uh, as they continue, uh, costs will increase, but no attempt was ever made to, to stop that, to make them better, to make them better programs and to, to stop the bleeding. Uh, in prior crises, uh, uh, Dodd-Frank, uh, 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 Firea, all tried to impose um, uh, reforms as part of the cost of a bailout. And Alex and I uh, say in the book very strongly that uh, there should never be a bailout without reform. And that is um, the problem that's going to uh, make this uh, student loan problem worse and worse and worse because these flawed student loans continue to be made in increasing amounts and, and sizes that make it almost impossible for many people to repay them. And that's a problem that's really caused by the federal government and the underlying nature of the program itself. Both of these problems um, existed before COVID. Long, long before. You might say on the question of uh, the forecasting how many future student loans that won't be repaid, they won't really be loans, exactly as you said, Steve, at least not altogether, which is why we keep saying in the book, whatever else you think, you cannot deny the whole program as a loan program is an utter and complete failure. It was sold politically as a loan program. It's called a loan program. It's marketed as a loan program. As a loan program, it is a, it is a complete failure. 
But we know that under the conditions now being proposed, they will get much bigger in the future because among the, the biggest beneficiaries of this program are the colleges themselves. The colleges are the promoters of these loans. They will know all about the free money that's available. It's not really free, of course. Somebody is paying, it's just not them. And they will make sure that these forecasts you mentioned are vastly understated because they will use this money to, uh, to as, as they have in the past, uh, to inflate their own expenses and, and pay for them, bearing no risk whatsoever for whether loans are ever paid back at, at even 50 cents on the dollar. What, we, uh, what Howard, Howard and I are really big on this no reform, no bailout principle. We, one of the other big problems, of course, is there's no cap on any of this either. The multi-employer pension bailout simply um, said we're going to pay all the existing uh, benefit amounts under these multi-employer plans until the end of uh, uh, 2051. Uh, and uh, no cap. Uh, and uh, in the student loan bailout, there's no cap. I mean, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 there are forecasts, but it is going to be what it is. And if the forecasts turn out to be vastly understated, as you suggest they may be, Steve, well, we're, it's the taxpayer who's out of luck. Yeah. So is, do, do you guys have a favored student loan reform? I mean, is there some specific policies that you think would be would, would be advantageous to implement? I have a big favorite. It's to make the colleges themselves responsible for a meaningful part of any losses on the loans to their students by cohort. In other words, to give the colleges skin in the game in the performance of the loans. And if the loans do not repay for any reason, like uh, income uh, determined repayment, the, uh, the colleges should be on the hook for a serious part of the loss as opposed to the taxpayer. Uh, my guess is something like 20% of, of the losses experienced by cohort and by, by establishing that interest in having the students, first of all, prepared to pay by their education. Secondly, to have them uh, considered in the beginning as, does this make sense? Does this program of study with this credit make sense? Thirdly, to understand that they have to re repay Fourthly, to, to give the college a, a, a serious incentive to, to uh, make efficient its own costs, I think we could have a tremendously bene beneficial uh, impact simply by, yeah, by instituting skin in the game. For, so this, this would be similar to what, yeah, so this would be similar to what we do with banks when they issue mortgages. We say, Same well, you have to hold a share of your home mortgages, you can't just bundle them up and sell them off to investors and worry about and let them worry about the losses. So well, that was a lesson we thought we learned. Right. Last time. We thought we yeah. learned. Right. That's right. And uh, <clears throat> that's right. It is. It is actually the first piece I wrote on this. I explicitly used that parallel. OK. The, the, the same logic applies. You had people promoting loans, benefiting from loans with no skin in the game at all. And of course, of course it all went bad and, and that we should take that, take that lesson. We, we thought we learned it. it hasn't been that well implemented 
but that the uh, but that the people actually making the loan should keep a serious part of the risk certainly applies in this case uh, as well, we think. I, I certainly can endorse the uh, structural reform. That's in our realm. We keep talking about that for some of the major entitlement programs uh, <laughs> that, you know, we and, and the tax code as well. I mean, there needs to be these structural reforms that people tend not to make unless they're to make, a, you know, make a, uh, as Steve put it, a, a turn a loan program into a grant program. Uh, okay, in the next segment, we're going to take up central banking to the max. So stay with us for that one. Uh, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing a new book called Surprised Again with the authors Alex Pollock and Howard Adler. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing a new book called Surprised Again. It's about the COVID pandemic and the uh, subsequent bubbles that it has created. And we're talking with the authors, Alex Pollock and Howard Adler. One very intriguing chapter in your book that we've talked a lot about uh, here, I don't know how one can ignore it, I think you call it central banking to the max. Howard has written a uh, op-ed about this in the Wall Street Journal. But Alex, let me start with you about this uh, concept of central banking to the max. This refers to the actions uh, over the time uh, in the in the wake of the crisis or during the crisis and its wake of the amazing expansion uh, of the Federal Reserve as part of the uh, intervention of the government, and that took the form of both uh, buying the government debt so that, in fact, what was happening is uh, the government would issue bonds to, to finance its deficits, but the Fed would buy a lot of them and just print the money. So if you think of the government as a consolidated entity, we were simply printing to finance the deficits. You net out the intra-government transactions between the Treasury and the Fed. And what a surprise, we got a big inflation. Uh, but the Federal Reserve's uh, actions were similar in the most recent, before this one, crisis, the crisis of 2007-2009. By the way, the 21st century is only 23 years old, and we've already had two giant bubbles in two giant crises. That's interesting. That's once every 10 years. Mm. Uh, that is the long-term historical average for crises. Uh, Tori, speaking of, should you expect crises? Yes. <laughs> I feel bad for the millennials. Now, it wasn't only uh, the Fed that was doing this, however. We point out in our, in our chapter on central banking to the max, which is chapter 12, should anyone be interested, uh, that all the central banks, or the major central banks, are in this together with the European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan, we also count Bank of Canada, uh, the Swiss National Bank, which is their central bank, and the Fed. And we add them all together, uh, and that is a uh, uh, table 12.7 in Chapter 12. Their total assets between 2008 and 2021 Multiple went up by seven times. There was 
seven times as big at the end as they were at the beginning. So they went from a total of adding all those central banks together of $3.8 trillion to $26.6 trillion. So these were amazing, amazing expansion of, of central bank activities and central bank balance sheet. And we are now living with that. Now with the Fed itself, it not only bought out government debt, it bought out mortgages. This was unprecedented. The, uh, the amount of mortgages owned by the Federal Reserve from its founding in 1913 uh, until 2007 was exactly zero. In our view, the amount of mortgages owned by the central bank should be zero. Today, it's $2.6 trillion. Now, uh, and, and in addition to that, there are $5.5 trillion of government debt. Could you say they just, the Fed just ought to sell this debt? Now, there are uh, two reasons why they won't do that. The first reason is they own it now at huge losses. That is to say, the market value of all these bonds and mortgages is far less than the book value or what they paid. How much less? Well, on September 30th, it was $1.1 trillion less. The Federal Reserve is not going to sell and recognize the losses on its books. The second thing is, of course, if you sell, somebody else has to buy. They put serious upward pressure on interest rates in the market. Because before you were putting downward pressure on interest rates, if you're buying and how to sell, you put upward pressure, they don't want to do that. So it won't happen. So what will happen is a very slow unwinding over time as these uh, securities mature and they're up against a problem. But four trillion of these bonds and mortgages have maturities greater than 10 years. So this is a long road ahead. So uh, Milton Friedman famously once said that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. So if you go back to 2007, when the Fed's balance sheet was less than a trillion, it, it over the course of the financial crisis in 2007, 2009, they ran their balance sheet up to four trillion. And a lot of Fed watchers said, oh, no, we're going to have inflation, we're going to have inflation, and it never happened. Well, at least not consumer prices. You could obviously there's some asset price inflation, but the way we measure that is consumer, exactly what I will yes. argue to you. But, okay, but but we the way we measure, right, but the way we measure consumer inflation, there was no inflation. People kept saying, "Well, you know, there's going to be inflation." Then, of course, the COVID crisis came, and they ran up their balance sheet another four trillion, almost five trillion. So where they went from you know less than one to four, up to nine, and people said, "Oh, we're going to have inflation. We're going to have inflation." Unfortunately, at the same time, we had the COVID crisis with all the supply chain supply chain shocks. And we had the war in Ukraine with the energy supply shocks. And so we got the inflation and uh, the Fed looks like maybe they escaped blame. And I guess my question is, should we blame the Fed or do they deserve to be let off the hook because inflation wasn't inevitable and it really is more about the war in Ukraine and more about COVID supply shocks. What's what's your thought there? No, they, they shouldn't be let off the hook because what they did did lead to inflation. And the Fed's balance sheet is also tied to the amount of national debt, which is now above 
31 trillion. Because it, it, the we're very lucky in the United States. We're a wealthy country, and because uh, the dollar is the world's reserve currency, there is enormous worldwide demand for treasury debt. But along with the principle, economic principle that Alex um, stated, that nothing is free, uh, I would add the second principle that nothing is infinite. Um, what you had was um, uh, as the as Treasury borrowed to fix COVID, the Fed bought that debt. So now they hold 5.5 trillion uh, of that debt themselves. So what is the real demand uh, for U.S. Treasury debt? Is there an infinite demand? There are only eight billion people in the world. Um, at some point, at some point. Um, there, there has to be, if you keep borrowing without, um, without, uh, uh, without limit, at some point you have to logically reach a point where demand is going to go down, interest rates are going to go up, the federal deficit is going to increase, and you're going to have more inflation. The problem, as you point out also with the Fed's balance sheet, is that it never comes down. It went up uh, in 2007, $800 billion, uh, before this crisis, $4 trillion. Now it got up to 8.9 trillion, but it's back down to with runoff of debt to about 8.6 trillion. Um, the reasons that Alex stated, they can't really dump a debt. They destroy the markets and they take huge losses. So they have to let it slowly run off. What happens if we get the next crisis and it's before 10 years? What happens if this recession uh, uh, is a crisis. Can the can the Fed's balance sheet uh, grow infinitely? Can it buy yet more debt? At what point will people around the world stop wanting to buy U.S. Treasury debt? These are real problems, and uh, and they can't be ignored. Um, the numbers are getting to be astronomical, and uh, we just can't keep spending, spending, spending without any. Um, uh, idea that uh, at some point uh, it, it 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 will reach a limit and we'll have to stop. So what's what's going on in the financial markets? I mean, the last consumer price inflation numbers were over six percent, but if you look at the yield on the ten-year bond, it's three and a half percent. So it means investors are earning a real negative return of three percent. Now, are the financial markets wrong in their expectation that inflation is coming down? Are they willing to take a 3% loss on their investment? I mean, what's, what, are, what's, what are they thinking? There is a complete disconnect right now between what the Fed says and what the bond markets in particular uh, believe. The bond markets look at the inflation numbers and they say, well, look, the Fed can't really tell us the truth because if they tell us that inflation is really getting better, um, we'll have a boom in the markets and inflation will get worse. And so they'll, they'll, they'll make their own job a bit more difficult. So they sort of have to say what they're going to say. And the question is, do you believe the markets or you, or you believe the Fed? Uh, knowing uh, Jay Powell, and I think he's, by the way, an excellent uh, Fed chairman. I think we're lucky to have him because I think he's smart and he sees the problems. Um, I think he's very serious in... Uh, in uh, stop nipping this inflation uh, in, in the bud. And my own personal bet is on the Fed rather than the bond markets. But obviously, a lot of, st a lot of smart people um, have made a different decision. And if you're an investor, it's very hard to predict what is going to happen to um, bond yields and interest rates uh, and market uh, in the next year because of this basic disconnect between uh, what the markets are saying and what the Fed is saying. However, when you consider what central banks say, 
and what governments say, you have to remember the fabulous saying of Jean-Claude Juncker, that great European politician from Luxembourg, who said during the 2007-9 crisis, when it gets serious, you have to lie. <laughs> well, <laughs> that uh, seems to be a motto for uh, lots of people. <laughs> seems to be a guiding principle, as a matter I'm of fact. I'm afraid so, yes. <laughs> on, on Capitol Hill. You know, I, I got to have to wrap this up now, but there's one thing that, that I take from all of this, which is really with all, all, all the problems that we have, known and unknown, it is a reason, I would think, for the federal government to make sure that it was on a sustainable fiscal course, which we are not. Uh, we agree. So, yeah, we agree thank completely. you. Thank you for giving us one, one more series of reasons, anyway, uh, for, for making that point. Uh, that's all the time we have for this week. I want to thank our guests, Alex Pollack and Howard Adler, co-authors of Surprised Again, the COVID crisis and the new market bubble. Uh, this is your host, Bob Bixby. You're listening to Facing the Future. Tune in again next week for another edition of this program. <laughs>